So uh, here uh, is a big challenge that faces our culture, and the, cu- the challenge is this. The thing that drives most of us, wouldn't you agree, is a desire to be happy and comfortable and at peace. Isn't that right? Like if you think about it, what, what drives other cultures might be honor or glory. What drives us is, how can we be happy? And I know this is true about myself because when I watch movies or I read books where people are driven by honor, not by what's going to make them happy, I'm like, well, that's just a dumb choice. Why would you do that? Just marry her for goodness or leave her for goodness or don't go and fight. You might get yourself killed. How dumb is that? Send someone else because you should be happy. I see it uh, amongst my peers who've got kids doing final years of schooling and IB and HSC and and there's an anxiety amongst parents. You may not know this. Actually, if you're at school, you probably know it all too well. There's parental anxiety for our kids to perform. And you go, why? Well, it's because what we really want is our kids to get great marks, get into a great degree, get into a great secure job so that their wealth and their money and their status and their lifestyle can buy them peace, insulate them from pain and hardship and be happy. Just have a great life. That's what we live for, don't we? Now, uh, there's a problem with that. Uh, and there's a, there's a particular problem with that if you're a person of faith. And the problem is this. Uh, in the first instance, that is not at all what will give you a meaningful life. The pursuit of your own comfort and the pursuit of your own psychological peace and wellness, if you live for that, you're actually not going to have a life worth living in the end. And in particular for Christians, it's a problem, right? And it's a, this is the problem, you see, we're brought up in this culture, and what can sometimes happen is we can think, oh, you know, um, uh, if I come to become a Christian, if I follow Jesus, if I have faith, if I connect with God, then, then I, my life will be great, and I'll have peace, and all my friendships will work well, and God will give me the partner that I long for and dream of, and everything will be great. Friends, the problem is it doesn't work like that. We live in a unique time in human history where we are, for this short moment, safe, rich, healthy. But that is so unusual. It's not actually the way most of life works. We see this here with Paul. We see that, that actually... You know what? Learning how to deal with suffering and persecution for your faith is actually the most important thing you and I can learn because that's the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is not a life of personal peace and affluence where everything works out well, you go out, you have a great career, and then Jesus just sprinkles a little bit of divine happiness on you. Actually, the normal life is a life where we are rejected and persecuted for our faith. And you say, that's a bit bleak, Mark. Where do you get that from? Well, let's have a look at the text. And we'll see in verse 22 
of this text. I think the summary, uh, the, the verse that Paul uses to make meaning out of this whole story of Acts 14, this great story, and he, he goes through this great experience, it's wonderful, it's exciting, it's dramatic, it's brutal, and then what does he do with that? Well, he goes back to Antioch, where he'd been sent from, and he says this, he goes to, uh, returns to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and what, he, what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith, okay? So, uh, it seems that it is possible for us to have faith and then to wander from it. It's possible to, to start off strong and then, for all kinds of reasons, give up on Jesus. And he's worried that the Christians in these towns are going to do that. So, he goes back to strengthen them, encourage them. And, and what is the message that he gives them? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Many hardships. Hey, that's a... That's um, a healthy corrective. <laughs> to our world, it says, it all should be fine. And if it's not fine, and if our faith is causing us pain and difficulty, then maybe there's something wrong with our faith. So that, that, these, these early Christians, they, were, they might have been looking at Paul. In fact, the chances are very good. They were looking at Paul and the rejection and the suffering he got, and they were going, man, there's something wrong with Christianity. Maybe we should go back to our old pagan ways. You see that if Paul suffers and is persecuted at this stage of his life, then then that's got to get us thinking that this is actually going to be part and parcel of everyday life for you and me. I'll tell you why. Uh, for Paul, in his Christian ministry and in his Christian life, this, this time of ministry is pretty much as good as it gets, right? I mean, think about it. They've been there preaching. They've Lots of preaching very, very effectively. Here we go uh, in Iconium. They get driven out of there, um, but then they're going. They're doing up. Um, they're they're uh, performing signs and wonders. It's amazing. This guy comes along who's been uh, lame since birth in uh, Lyconium, and uh, he, in the same way, by the way, this story here is just for those of you who want to study a little more deeply, this actually parallels the story of Peter's healings in Acts 3. So Luke is making a, a very self-conscious parallel between uh, Peter and Paul to endorse Paul's apostolic ministry. So here he goes. Here's this guy. He says, stand up on your feet. The man jumps up and he begins to walk. Like this is, for an itinerant preacher, this is some seriously good ministry. This is like Benny Hinn's support team going off their heads with excitement because here's a guy getting healed that they didn't have to set up, right? It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, I thought that was funny, but you know, um, it's, it's brilliant. And look, everybody else realizes that it's pretty amazing as well because guess what happens next? The crowd see what he's done and they don't just go, man, that's a pretty impressive preacher right there. They don't go, whoa. What a healer. What do the crowds do? Oh, it's got to be God's. Like, that's like every professionally religious starter of a new, Christ, of a new religious movement dream, right? 
Like you can make some serious coin when people think you're God, as the history of the world tells us. People do it all the time. And by the way, uh, the reason they assume this, they see this miracle, and they think these are Zeus and Hermes, because actually there's a, there was a myth in Lyconium at the time that is told for us in the, uh, the prophet Ovid, and the, this, the myth that was common at the time was that uh, sometime before, maybe 150 years earlier, in fact, Zeus and Hermes, the two gods, had come to visit Lyconium. And they'd gone door knocking to try and find someone to take them in and give them some hospitality. And uh, a thou- they'd knocked on the doors of a thousand homes, a thousand people wouldn't take them in. And eventually, after knocking on a thousand doors, they come to this tiny, humble little house and this little old couple bring them into their modest home, feed them. They don't recognize that these two people are gods. And eventually, Zeus and Hermes say, come with us because you've shown us hospitality. We're going to spare you. Take them up to a hilltop from which they watch the gods destroy all the people who hadn't accepted them. So this was a, this was a, a very prominent myth in Lyconium. So now... Uh, they're always on the lookout. Is there going to be a God? God's going to be amongst us. And here come two people who perform this miraculous sign. I'm like, better make sure that let's, let's, you know, got to be safe. Let's treat them as gods because we don't want to get destroyed again. So, this is pretty great ministry for Paul, right? I mean, this is fantastic. Doesn't last long though, does it? Because what he does immediately after this is what any good Jewish teacher does. I mean, he he they they realize what's happened, and look, they tear their clothes, which is a a sign of repentance. Jewish prophets and uh, leaders would tear their clothes as a sign of repentance before God, because these people are committing blasphemy. They they're worshiping humans instead of God, and and as any Jewish person knows, the key idea that um, the most profound central idea of Judaism that came into our world with, with uh, the Bible and with Judaism is the idea there's only one God. There's not a multiplicity of gods. Fundamental saying in, is, in, in, in Judaism is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. When a Jew even today dies, they recite Shema as they die as a statement of faith. There's only one God, only one God. And so here, Paul and Barnabas, there's only one God. Don't worship us. Don't worship us. That's good news. I I don't know, it's success, right? I've been preaching for like 25 years. No one's ever mistaken me for a God yet. Still trying. No chance? I need smoke machines. Yeah, I I should have some. That might help. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Um, The people are really resistant to this idea. And in fact, the very heart of what Paul next says exposes something in the human heart that shows why people of faith are always going to be persecuted, right? Right? See, he says, we're only human, and we want to bring you good news. (coughs) We want to bring you good news, telling you to do what? To turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. This is a God who's shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
Paul and Barnabas say to the, the people there, listen, you know, these, these gods that you worship, they're not real gods. They, they won't really deliver for you. Um, you know, if you think about our culture, right? We don't, when we sometimes think of idolatry and other gods, we think of temples and carved little statues and little Buddhas, you know, you rub their tummy and you wish a thought or whatever it is. Um, but what are the idols? What are the false gods that, that drive us? Well, an idol is any good thing that we make ultimate. An idol is, is anything that you live for that you think will provide you with meaning and purpose, hope and life. An idol is anything that you look to to make sense of your life and without whose blessing your life is meaningless. So in our day and age, it'd be things like what? Success, money. If I'm successful, if I have money, then my life matters, then I've made it. Could be intellectual capacity. It could be youth. Could be physical wellness. All kinds of things that we live for and you think, if I have this, then my life is worth it. And if I don't have that, then my life is over. And Paul says to the, uh, to the Iconians, and the Bible says to you and I, and the Holy Spirit says to us tonight, you know what? <laughs> These things are worthless because in the end they won't deliver what they, what they say they will. You know, if you live for money, well, that maybe you'll get a lot of money. But is it going to give you meaning and purpose in life? Is your money going to save you from death? Is your money going to be there when you get the cancer diagnosis? No, it's not going to come through for you. Success, same thing. Promises you so much, but what's it really mean? In the end, it's not enough. None of these things are really enough. And Paul says, listen, the only thing that's enough is the living God. And this is good news. There's one God, and He's alive, and He loves you, and He blesses you. So that's great. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, that all these people hearing this would go, you're right. You're not gods. Wow. You're telling me you're not a god. I recognize this because if you were a god, you'd accept our worship, and now you're telling us of this one true God. Tell us some more. But what's, there's this fascinating verse here. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Why? And actually, there's a deeper why. The, the real question is, why, why is it that people like you and I and people in our culture find it so hard to turn from idols, to turn from worthless things, to worship the one true living God? Now, you might be saying to yourself, Mark, I don't find that hard. I'm all in for God. Let me tell you, no, you find it hard. You really do. If I spent five minutes with you, I'm telling you, I could uncover all kinds of ways in which you live for and trust things other than God. Because uh, I do. It's this, this incredible tendency in our hearts to start trusting things other than God. Why? Well, here's what I think is going on. The thing about idols, uh, the thing about things other than God that we worship is that we control them. 
I'm in charge still, you see. If I worship money, then it's up to me to make the money. I'm in control. I'm in charge. If it's success, I'm in charge. I'm in control. If it's human beings that I call Zeus and Hermes, I'm in charge. I'm in control. Or as the psalmist and I, the prophets in the Old Testament say, you know, we, we carve things out of bits of wood. We carve the thing out of the bit of wood. Then we fall down and worship it because we want to be in control. We want to be masters of our fate. We want to be in charge of our lives because we struggle to trust God. I mean, imagine trusting an invisible authority figure. I want to, I, I want to be the ultimate one who chooses what is right or wrong for me. Don't you tell me what I should do with my life. That's why they find it so hard. Because as human beings, we want to be in control. We want to be the ones who call the shots, don't we? And, and at least part of it is because we have, this, we have an enormous amount of trouble trusting authority figures, don't we? We really struggle to trust those who are powerful and in authority over us. Um, imagine you're in class, you're sitting in class one day, and a runner or a message comes to your teacher and they say, uh, Leech, can you go to the principal's office immediately? Have any of you ever been called to the principal's office when you were at school? Yeah, Oliver, when were you called to the principal's office? <laughs> oh, okay, oh, for your job. Uh, so let me tell you, I, that, that happened to me when I was at school. And um, when you get a little note like that to go to the principal's office, the first thing that goes through your head is not this. This is not how I thought when I got summoned to the... It's not like, oh, this is so awesome. The principal's calling me into his office to say, Leech, I just love having you in school. You are an awesome student. How can I support you in your academic success? That wasn't what I thought. What do you think? Oh, oh man, what have I done wrong? Actually, in the school I went to, it was, do I have time to go to the bathroom and put on another five sets of undies so when I get caned, it doesn't hurt quite so much, you know? That was typically, because we're scared, right, of authority. It's like when you're driving and you hear a police siren behind you. It's like, oh, you don't think to yourself, yay, the cop's pulling me over to give me a little certificate of merit. Well done, Mr. Leach. You're such a good driver. You go, oh, man, what, who did I run over? <laughs> what, did I, what did I hit? What law have I broken? Because we're scared of authority. Because often people in authority treat us badly and we want to be in control. I don't want anyone else having power over me because I'm ashamed and I want to protect myself and I want to be in charge. And so actually the drive towards idolatry, the drive towards worshipping created things rather than the Creator comes from a very deep bias in our souls. And so, it's not uncommon at all for Christian people to find that when people in the world discover that we are calling on them to leave their idols, when we shine a spotlight on their brokenness, our brokenness, their hatred of God, their fear of God gets turned onto the messenger. That's what happened here, right? So look at this. Um, some Jews come from Antioch and Iconium and win the crowd over. 
So one day they're thinking, Paul, you're a god. The next day they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. That's what happens, right? People of faith who call out the idolatry in other cultures, other religions, other people, and point people to Jesus, find that you can initially be very, very popular, but crowds are fickle and persecution comes. Right? It comes, doesn't it? And it it wasn't unique to just this situation in Paul's life. In fact, uh, this, is, this was a prophecy. We looked at this a few weeks ago as Paul was just newly converted. God sends Ananias to him to tell him this, uh, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This was going to be the whole trajectory of Paul's life, suffering for the name of Jesus, telling people that there's one true God, abandon your worthless idols and follow this God and his son Jesus. And people loved that message and they hated that message, they loved the messenger, and they hated the messenger. And that was the way his whole life went. Later on in Paul's ministry, he writes to the, Thess- the, the Thessalonians, and he says this, we sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to do, and again, using the same words as Acts, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Oh. Says to the Thessalonians, don't worry when you've heard about all the, the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the hardships I've gone through. It doesn't mean God has abandoned me. It doesn't mean the gospel is not true. It doesn't mean that, that it's not worth following Jesus. He said this was the plan all along. So, so be strong. Hang in there. This was God's plan all along. And now, if you're like me, and at least in some ways you are, you might be sitting there thinking, I'm glad I'm not Paul. Imagine that. Imagine being destined to suffer. That'd suck, wouldn't it? Well, uh, I've got some... Well, really, it's just bad news for you, except it then becomes good news. But it's not just Paul. Uh, This is what Paul says to Timothy at the end of his life. He's writing to his young disciple, Timothy. And he says, You, however, in 2 Timothy 3, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. He's referring back to this passage we've just read. And he says, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And yeah, good on you, Paul. And then you find one of the great promises of the Bible. You find one of those verses that is all, you know, Christian bookstores, and they sell these Christian motivational little posters, sunsets, and footprints, and fluffy chickens with Bible verses on. Don't you see this Bible verse everywhere in these motivational posters? Here's a great promise. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Man, that's heavy, right? 
It's not some super spiritual people. I mean, my initial response to this is, well, I'm pretty happy living an ungodly life. <laughs> Just let me do that, God. Because I don't want to be persecuted. But this is, this is the reality of the Christian life. For a brief moment in time, we may escape it. But I suspect some of you know a bit of persecution, don't you? Some of you know that you've lost friends because you're a person of faith. You're a daggy Christian who goes to a crew group at lunchtime or goes to youth group or, you know, because of that you don't get invited to the really cool parties. Or maybe you do because you've compromised fatally and you're really living in... No, no, I'm only joking. Um, you might just be so cool that overrides your Christianness in a good sense. You might have lost work because of your faith. I certainly know people who've lost work because of their faith. But you know, if you look around the world, where we live in this well-functioning liberal democracy is unique because around the world today, this is the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? Just think about it. I don't know if you've thought much about it. Uh, people of Christian faith are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world. So... Uh, Asia Bibi, uh, a woman in Pakistan, mother, mother of five, has been in prison for nearly a decade in Pakistan uh, under their blasphemy laws. And just this week, the Supreme Court in Pakistan ruled that she had no case to answer and she was free to go. And you go, that's a wonderful answer to prayer. But you know what happened? Vast segments of the nearly 100 million Muslim people in Pakistan rioted and uh, blockaded the road so she couldn't get out of jail and threatened to overthrow the government because they hate her blasphemy and they hate her faith. And so she's still in jail. And Imran Khan, who on Wednesday, the, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, welcomes the court ruling and says this is a new era in Pakistan, by the weekend has backed down and made a deal with the Islamists. We have very dear friends who are Pakistani Christians. And they are in fear for their lives because of the persecution that is going to come upon them because of this decision. And it's not just Pakistan. You go into India. There's a massive upsurge in Hindu nationalism that is resulting in Christians being persecuted for their faith. You stand up for Jesus. You preach the gospel. You call on Indian people to turn from, their, from the idols of Hinduism to follow the one true living God. You put your life on the line in many parts of India. Go to northern Nigeria. And you see a genocide that is occurring in slow motion over the last decade in northern Nigeria where thousands and thousands of people are being killed. Girls are being taken off into forced marriages and into the slave trade because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You go to North Korea and if you become a follower of Jesus in North Korea, you and your family and your loved ones will spend the rest of your lives in a slave camp, being worked to death. You go to China. 
and you see a massive crackdown on the Chinese church. And to be a believer in Jesus in China is increasingly a risky and life-threatening affair. This, dear friends, is the normal Christian life. Someone came to me after the morning service, a wonderful, beautiful older lady, and she said to me, Mark, I'm just worried that I haven't been persecuted enough. <laughs> and I said, the Bible doesn't encourage us to go seeking the persecution. And it's great that under God we've influenced a culture here and we've got a society where built on the foundational idea that Jesus introduced into the history of ideas, the separation of church and state, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Because of that, you and I aren't persecuted for our faith now. Don't go looking for it. Just thank God that he has spared you. But, but if and when it comes, we need to be ready for it. We need to be ready for it. So, um, what does that mean for us? And in particular, why on earth would you be a Christian if it's going to entail persecution and suffering for your faith? Like, why do that? Well, two reasons, really, that I can think of. And the first is, and I don't know how else to put it except this, I think there comes a time in our lives where we just know that we can't not be Christians. We just know it's true. You go, yep, that's it. I, I just I can't not believe. I have to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost. And then you do this, you embrace this life because this life of being persecuted is actually the life of God, isn't it? Think about it. This is actually exactly how God was treated by you and I. When God came into this world as the only truly innocent person, the only person who got persecuted purely for his faith, not because of his faith and the fact that he was a bit of an idiot, which is like me and you, you know, we, we in the church, we get persecuted in Australia, rejected for our faith, but also sometimes because we're stupid. Not so with Jesus. Perfectly innocent, comes as God, and he comes into this world to do what? To overcome evil, to put an end to injustice. How does he do it? Well, when someone has committed evil against you, there's only two ways to resolve it and deal with it. One, you persecute it and you kill it in the other person. So if you've hurt me, I will make you pay. The other way to address it is to say, I won't make you pay. I will pay the price myself. I will absorb the evil and the injustice and the suffering into myself, and I will let you go free. And the, the shape, the moral shape of this created world is that God comes into the world, He descends and comes amongst us, and He overcomes evil and persecution by letting evil do its worst on Him. 
In fact, the Bible says Jesus became sin for us. He came into this world and he said to a world that hated him, do your worst, kill me if you like. And that is exactly what we did. But we also know that the arc of history, the way the world works is that as God came in and was crucified and died, on the other side of that he rose to new life, defeating injustice and evil through his suffering love and his sacrificial death. And so you and I follow Jesus and, and, and our sisters and brothers in countries where they are persecuted follow Jesus in the knowledge that, you know what? Let the world do its worst. I mean, what's the worst that anyone could do? They can take my life. And if they take my life, what they've done is they've planted me absolutely in the center of the footsteps of Jesus. And if I follow in the footsteps of Jesus through suffering and persecution for my faith, I know that on the other side of my death is resurrection and glory. So we have hope. We have an eternal destiny. We know that none of the sufferings that we encounter in this world because of our faith are in vain. But they are winning for us a crown of glory as they did for our Lord and Savior. And we have to say, don't we? We have to say that we can't expect to live an easier life than Jesus. We say, well, suffering and persecution was good enough for our Lord, but nah, not so much for me. I'm kind of a little over that. It's not really my thing. I'm sort of beyond that. I'm a little better than that, a little more evolved than that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Human history shows that it is true that all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be, I will be. It'll come. And when the persecution comes, in whatever form it takes, the most important thing is to be encouraged and strong and say, do not take your eyes off Jesus. Do not give up your faith. When persecution comes, it is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's actually a sign that you are most closely woven into the very moral fabric of the universe and stepping in the exact footsteps of Jesus. And when you follow him into your grave, you will follow him also into his glory. Now, may God in his mercy spare us from the persecutions that our sisters and brothers in, the, in many parts of the world are facing. But if he doesn't, we must stand. And we must stand strong. And we must be ready to die well. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your servant Paul who followed in the footsteps of your servant and your son Jesus, who showed us that persecution and suffering is not the end of life, but it's the way of life and it's the path to glory. And I pray that you will strengthen and encourage and equip us so that come what may, we will never abandon our faith in Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.